0: That's great. Praise the Lord. Uh, For those of you that haven't met me yet, my name's Ryan. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here. Um, And I had an intentional stretch of four weeks off of preaching and then decided to get pneumonia. So you all have not seen me in a while, which means I have a lot to say. Uh, And, um, yeah, it's going to be great. I have time, but, you know, there's also donuts and ice cream. So it's kind of that balance, like, what do we do here? Um, So, uh, this Sunday, uh, we're celebrating for a lot of reasons. Um, And one reason is it's a year from our first merged trial service. Uh, Exactly a year from today. Um, So if you don't know, two churches came together. We decided to date each other for a couple of weeks before we signed the papers. This is a year from our first date. And um, God has just done some incredibly amazing things through this community of believers. Uh, we celebrated a couple baptisms on Thursday. We've been celebrating baptisms all year long. It's been an incredible journey of God's faithfulness. We've given tens of thousands of dollars away to missions, organizations, community outreach partners. God has been faithful. And, good. Um, and as incredible as it's been, it's, it's daunting to me because there's so much more work to be done in this community uh, for the kingdom of God. And, I'm just excited that we have decided to come together as a community to go after that darkness together for a long time. And God's in charge of the fruit. We don't have to make it happen. So uh, this Sunday is incredible. We're finishing up this series that we've called We Are the Church. It's our inaugural membership series. Uh, It was also intended to go through our mission, vision, and values statement. Uh, We got a little bit behind schedule on that. And so I have a really ambitious task this morning. I'm going to do like a seven to ten minute TED Talk reminding us of what that mission, vision, values thing is, why we have it. Then I'm going to pray and preach a sermon. Okay, so it's going to be, we're going to do our best. And the reason I decided not to kind of split this into two weeks is because uh, I really feel called and excited about this upcoming series on the book of John. Uh, We've got about 15 weeks between now and Christmas, which is crazy to think about, Um, but uh, the Gospel of John, we're going to be going through uh, the seven I Am statements and seven miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of John, and the book of John really is written to convince the reader that Jesus is the Son of God, and if Jesus is the Son of God, that changes literally everything, and if he isn't, then why are we here, right? And so what I would encourage you to do is this series is an excellent series to invite people to that don't know Jesus. People that are spiritually curious, that like the idea of Jesus, but haven't given their lives to Jesus. Um, And so I'd love to encourage you to think about that. Pray for those people in your lives. But that's why I have way too much to do this morning. So, um, mission, vision, value statements. Why do organizations have it? Why do we have it? Is it really that necessary or important and how who came up with them who who decided that this is our mission vision and value statement um, first the process so at, at canvas community church I we believe that um, my job as lead pastor is to cast vision but not to create vision that vision comes from us collectively like what is God calling us as a church to do not what is God calling me to do as a pastor and then I have to tell I get to tell you what you have to do what is God calling us to do and so as we were putting together this mission vision and practice statement, I sat in a room with multiple people from both previous congregations for hours and hours those of you that were there I'm looking for you it was fun and challenging and uh, an awesome process and we just prayed. For discernment. What is it that God has uniquely called our church to do? Um, because the reality is, there's a big C church and a little C church. Big C church is all of us that have decided that Jesus is Lord and have submitted to his leadership. Like every human being on earth that has believed, placed their faith, trust in Jesus is a part of the church. And the church has a mission, vision, and values. The mission is the Great Commission. Go make disciples, teach, baptize, right? Like that's the mission of the church. The vision of the church is to see the kingdom of God manifested on earth as it is in heaven. The values are found throughout the New Testament, right? Like we as a big C church know what God's calling us to do, but it's important then for each individual church to kind of define what is unique about us, what makes us unique, what is God calling us to specifically. And so that's kind of Why we have these statements, Um, the purpose is that they help define who we are as a local church, what God is calling us to do, and we developed it together as a group. The board was involved in the process, and so that's kind of how we got here. C.S. Lewis actually gives a really helpful illustration, I think, in uh, Mere Christianity, where he says "The, the whole idea of Mere Christianity is to define the lobby of Christianity, like the big C church. What is it that we all believe? But then it's important that you move from the lobby into a room. And the room is different unique churches, different theologies, different callings, different passions. And so he, he gives this illustration of we're all in the same hall, but then we move from the hall into classrooms. And I kind of took that illustration and adapted it a little bit. Um, and I hope this makes sense. I hope it's helpful. If it isn't, just forget that I said it. But um, So I kind of view the church, Big C Church, as we, a group of, were vehicles moving north, powered by fossil fuels. This is going to make sense in a second, I promise. All right? So the church is vehicles moving north, powered by fossil fuels. That's, that's the mission, vision, core practices of Big C Church. But we as local churches then get to define what type of vehicle are we going to be. Are we going to be an SUV? Are we going to be a van? Are we going to be a tank? Probably not, if you read the New Testament. Um, are we going to be a boat? Like, what are we? What type of vehicle? What color? Like, what style? What form are we going to take on as a local church? And then the vision is like, yeah, we're all moving north, but what specific coordinates are we as a church headed towards? Like, what are we trying to tackle as a local church, like, let's put the specific coordinates in, not just north, but like, which way north? And then practices, like, what type of fuel are we going to put into that vehicle that we've created? Does that make sense? So that's that's our mission, vision, and core practices. So far, we've talked about our core practices, not as explicitly as I would have liked to, because of all the problems that I told you we had so far. So I'm going to rehash them for you. Then I'm going to pray, preach a sermon that is going to unveil our mission and our vision statement. Sound like a plan? Awesome. All right, so here are the practices of Canvas Community Church. This is the fuel, the thing that fuels our church uniquely to us. We unite for the sake of the gospel. We prioritize primary theology. Not that secondary theology isn't important, but we believe the gospel is too important for us to divide over things that don't matter. Our church is good at this. It's unique to us. I've been a part of so many conversations where people went into the room with this really important doctrine, something that they believed down to their socks was true. And I've heard them in the room say, I believe that this is true, but it's not so important that I'm going to divide over. We're going to find unity for the sake of the gospel. Secondly, we rely on the living and written word of God. The Bible tells us what to do. We don't get to redefine it for ourselves. And the Bible points us to Jesus, who is the living Word of God, God incarnate in the flesh. What He did, how He lived, should be prioritized in the way that we think and live. Thirdly, we prioritize real relationships. Sunday mornings are awesome, like a room full of people celebrating Jesus is great, but we want people to get out of rows and into circles to form genuine relationships where you know each other, what's going on, you know your kids' names, you know the, 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 the difficulty that your families are going through, you're praying for one another, encouraging one another. We want to prioritize real, authentic relationships. And we want you to be okay with being honest with where you're at, not being fake, hiding sin. Like, we want to create a space where it's good for you to just come and say, this is who I am, this is where I'm at. It's okay that you're there, it's just not okay that you stay there. Lastly, we cultivate our spiritual gifts to serve others. The Holy Spirit was given to the church to empower us to do the things that God's calling us to do. Each of us have a unique and special gift. And if we, if we put it on the shelf, if we allow the enemy to convince us not to use it, the whole church misses out. And so we want to cultivate your spiritual gift, not for just the edification of the church, although it does that, but also to serve outside of these walls. So those are our practices. That's the fuel that goes into what we do here as a church. Let me pray, and then I'll preach a sermon that will give us our mission vision at the end. Father, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to just talk about what is unique to us as a church, what you're calling us to in the surrounding community, the things that you want us to value. God, may you, may you, may you create a fire in our souls for these things. May we be passionate about doing these things together. And if these things don't resonate with us, um, God, may we have conversations about why. And if, and if, It's not for us. May we find a church that's doing the thing that we feel called to do. God, because the church is so much better when we're doing what God's calling us to do together with others. So lead us, guide us, give us wisdom. Holy Spirit, be present. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 29 is where we're going to be. I will get there in a few minutes, so if you want to flip there on your phones, or it should be on the screen as well. Um, When I was... First dating Marissa, started to go visit her family, um, thinking that I was going to want to marry this girl. And so, you know, you're forming this relationship with their parents and you're, like, trying to, like, you know, figure stuff out and build that relationship. Her uh, dad was very clear that I was going to have to ask him for permission to marry her, which I love. But also, like, got some bridge building to do with her father, right? So in that process, I found out very quickly that her family are... Philadelphia Eagle fans. Yeah, and not only that, but they're like Philadelphia Eagle fans, right? And if you're not familiar with football or football culture, the Eagles fans are like a different breed of fan. Um, Philadelphia is like a different breed of city, and so like when they say they're fans, they're like really fans. And I grew up around here, and so I was a Washington football fan. And if you don't know football culture, Washington and Philly are rivals. They are opposed to one another in all things. And so I'm entering this relationship with this family that I'm trying to build bridges with. And, like, life, this is going to be a lifelong thing, I, I'm hoping and thinking, right? And so I have a few options in this moment. As I am a Washington fan, they're an Eagles fan. Um, I can double down, right? I can fight. This guy, like, yeah, you're an Eagles fan. I'm a Washington fan. Let's like rival. Let's do this thing, right? I could like double down on my fandom of the Washington football team and fight back, and we could just have this rivalry. And maybe it's fun and playful, or maybe he hates me and tells me I can't marry his daughter, right? Like, there's, there's, there's possibilities there. Um, <laughs> I could like withdraw and kind of pretend like I'm really not much of a football fan. Like, oh, my, my, my dad likes Washington. I don't really care. You know, like, I could, like, I could downplay it, kind of come back from it, or I could just not tell him and pretend like I'm an Eagles fan and, like, you know, like, conform to his passion and we could be best friends, and then he was definitely going to let me marry his daughter, right? So I've got a couple of (laughs) options, Um, and I I share this story with you because I wonder if if you've ever found yourself in a similar social dilemma where there was going to be some relational tension and you had a couple of options. You could double down, you could fight, you could kind of shrink back, flee away, or you could conform to whatever it is that that person's passionate about. And football teams are a bit of a trivial example of this, Um, but far more often these things happen with really important issues, really important ideas. And I believe individual Christians and the church in America, in an increasingly post-Christian culture which... This is a sidebar. I don't think is a bad thing. The church actually grows far more quickly and far more healthy when they're not in a position of power or authority. And so as our culture gets increasingly post-Christian, we're, we're put in these opportunities where we're building bridges with people outside of the church. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like I only have three options. Sometimes it feels like I can fight back against this culture. I can have a culture war against these ideas that are opposed to the things of God. Like our culture is proposing these ideas that are opposed to the things of God. We say we rely on the written living word of God. And then we go outside of these walls. And the culture is is championing ideas that aren't in here. So do I fight back? Do I, do I war against the people of the culture? Do I shrink back into holy huddles with other Christians that think like me, talk like me, act like me, believe like me, and we'll just pretend like nothing's happening outside of these walls? Do I conform? Do I like just take on the attributes of the culture around me? I don't know about you, but oftentimes it feels like these are our options, and none of them feel really good to me. And so the reason we're turning to Jeremiah chapter 29 this morning is because I believe Jeremiah 29 gives us a blueprint for a better option. A better option for followers of God in a culture that is opposed to the things of God. How do they how do we navigate that tension? How do we build bridges and relationships with the culture that is opposed to the things of God? So, Jeremiah 29 for some context for those of you that don't know the Bible or don't know the Old Testament, or whatever reason you don't know what's going on in Jeremiah 29, you have a good reason to not know. But Jeremiah is a prophet around the 6th century BC, and he is writing to a group of Jewish exiles who have been taken from their homeland and then brought into captivity in Babylon. Babylon is a culture that is opposed to the things of God. They've come in, they've brought judgment. God, it actually tells us that God, like, uses them to bring judgment on the Israelites. And so we've got God's people trapped in, God, in a godless nation, and then Jeremiah writes them a letter of how they're supposed to live in this situation, in this tension that they find themselves in. And I know what you might be thinking. What does a letter from 2,500 years ago to Jews in Babylon have anything to do with my life today? Right? Anybody? Anybody thinking that? Well, I've made this joke many times, but I'm going to do it again because I put it in there. I love when you ask the question that my outline answers. Let me let me get there. Um, and let me start with this quote from my friend Josh Howerton who says, The Bible isn't just about what happened, but it's about what always happens. And so, yes, this is a letter from 2,500 years ago. From a prophet to Jews trapped in Babylon. But it's also about how godly people living in a secular culture can navigate these relationships. See, throughout Scripture, Babylon, yes, Babylon is a real place. This is this happened. This is historical. We could back it up with archaeology and history. This happened. But throughout Scripture, Babylon isn't just a, a physical place, but it's symbolic for it's a picture of any kingdom that sets itself up against the kingdom of God, that counterfeits the things of God. Tim Mackie puts it this way. He says, Babylon in the Bible has become any institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. So, yes, Babylon is a real place, but it also is, is this biblical concept of secular cultures that sets them, themselves up against the things of God. Not only is Babylon a symbol for secular cultures, but exiles in Scripture has become a way that most often God's people exist. Like, just retrace the, the, the history of the nation of Israel. Like, oftentimes they find themselves in exile. Look at the history of the church. Oftentimes followers of God find themselves powerless and, 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 and overseen by secular governments and culture. And so yes, Jeremiah is writing two specific exiles in Babylon, but I think we can draw out some principles to us as we find ourselves in twenty twenty three in America in a post increasingly post Christian culture. How do we navigate these tensions? And can I say again, I think I said it a little bit earlier. You hear the word exile and you're like, I don't want I don't want to no thanks right right and 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 i think this is why the church previously in the generation before worked really hard to like gain political power because nobody wants to be powerless we want influence we want power but but look look at the history of the church and it grows most when it seemingly has no influence or power a a, a group of exiles living according to the principles of God in a culture that sets itself up against the things of God, is one of the things that God uses most to build his church. So, this is what Jeremiah writes to exiles in Babylon, but I think think we could essentially say this is what God would say to us who find ourselves as exiles in a post-Christian culture in America in 2023. Jeremiah says, Ah, uh, 29, verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Verse 4, Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says to you as you are in exile in a nation that literally hates all of the things that you believe to be true. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem. So notice this wasn't an accident. God allowed this to happen. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have your sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there. And do not decrease. So up to this point, the exiles would have been like, yeah, that's what we do. Like, that's what Israel has always done. Israel has always, like, formed this community of other Jewish people. They've, they've kept to their identity, and then they just trust God with the rest, and empires fall, and, and whatever happens, they're they're a tight-knit group. And so they would have been tracking with this. But then, verse 7, But fight back against the culture of Babylon and the... People of Babylon, say that says seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. For in its welfare you will find welfare. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel: Do not let your prophets and your uh, diviners, who are among you, deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie. They are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So, in a situation where it seems like Israel might only have three options, it seems like Jeremiah is giving them a fourth option. Right? feels like maybe fighting back against this culture of godless people might be our option. Get together with strong, powerful, influential people, and, and we can form... Groups that have power and influence, and we can fight back. Or, or, or maybe we, with, we just withdraw and create these holy huddles where we don't interact with people at all outside of these walls, or maybe we just conform, we just become Babylonian, and we'll be safe, and everything will be good, and we'll be comfortable, and life will be great. Jeremiah seems to say, those aren't good options. There's a better option seems to say, don't fight back against the culture. Because when we fight back against the culture, we lose sight of who the real enemy is. I've seen this play out so often in the church in America. When, when the church fights back against the culture, it makes the people of the culture its enemy. We make the very people that Jesus Christ died for The enemy of the church. We fight back, not against the ideas, but against the people. And Jeremiah is saying, don't fight back against the people. Remember who the true enemy is. Ephesians chapter six, Paul says this, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. The great enemy of God is the one who is counterfeiting the kingdom of God through secular culture. Our enemy is not the people of the culture. And so fighting is not an option. Creating culture wars is not an option. When we get confrontational with the people of Babylon, we make the very people Jesus died for our enemies. I love how Rich Valotis says it. He says, it's a really curious evangelism strategy to despise the people you're trying to bring to Jesus. It's a really curious evangelism strategy to the dev- despise the people you're trying to bring to Jesus. And 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 here's the thing. I don't believe... I know brothers and sisters in Christ who have kind of taken this fighting back against the culture perspective. And I don't believe that this is what their intention is. But I think slowly over time that's how cult, our culture interprets it. They say, these people hate us. They want nothing to do with us. They don't listen to us. They don't talk with us. They just rally against the things that we value. And so when we fight back against the culture, we make the wrong enemy the enemy. So Jeremiah is saying don't fight back against the culture. But he's also saying don't withdraw from the culture. Don't just do the Jewish thing and and be really good Jews in Babylon and ignore everything that's going out there. He says Work for the prosperity of the culture. Pray for the people of the culture. And again, I think out of fear and um, a reverence for holiness, sometimes we withdraw so much from the culture because we don't want to conform to the patterns of this world. And so we create these holy huddles of people that think like us, talk like us, believe like us, act like us. And we, when we withdraw from secular culture, we give up valuable kingdom influence. We're missing opportunities to demonstrate the salt and light of Jesus to the culture around us. Jesus demonstrated for us how to treat idolatrous people in a secular culture opposed to God's values. He came to a people that despised him. The God that created the universe came to earth. And the the people around set him up as their enemy and he lovingly engaged them in relationship. So much so that he literally laid down his life for them to the point that when when they were killing him and mocking him, he looked to the father and he said, Forgive them. They're not my enemy. They don't know what they're doing. They've been tricked by a counterfeit culture, the enemy of God has convinced them that I am their enemy when really I am their savior. So don't don't put it against them. Forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And I think many of us, including myself at times, we've become hard-hearted towards the people of culture. We view them as our enemies. Others of us have become so afraid of cultural influences over us that we've withdrawn, which yet again in just another way makes them our enemies. So what if we fought back against both of these perspectives by intentionally praying for the welfare of the people around us? Imagine how God might change our hearts towards people and culture if we just prayed for them. If we just engaged them in relationship, went out of our way to intentionally connect. So, not only is fighting or fleeing not an appropriate response, but neither is conforming. And this is, for me, I'm just going to be as vulnerable and transparent as possible. This is the one that's most tempting for me. Because I I'm, I love people, right? I want to have a good friendship with every single one of you in this room, which is not possible. But I want it. Like, I desperately want it. And so... I think many Christians, we read passages like this from Jeremiah, and we desperately want to love the people of our culture. We don't want to be competitive or withdrawn, but what we do instead is slowly over time we just conform to the cultural values that are counterfeit to the values of the kingdom of God. The enemy slowly over time, just we make one compromise and another And another, and before we know it, there's nothing distinct about us as Christ followers from anyone else who doesn't follow Jesus. And what God is not telling the Jewish exiles to do is to conform to Babylonian culture. He wants them to flourish in Babylon distinctly as Jews while they work for the flourishing of the Babylonian culture. So it's not our job to hold non-Christians accountable to the standards of the kingdom of God. They don't agree with those ideas. But it's also not our job to, to pretend like they're not valuable to us, like they're not important to us. We don't apologize or shrink back from living differently in light of the kingdom of God. We distinctly follow Jesus in a culture that is opposed to the things of Jesus. And we do so lovingly with compassion and intentionality in prayer. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, to the temptation to conform. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything. He's saying, if you lose your distinctness, if you stop being distinctly a follower of Jesus, then you won't be An influence on the culture around you. You will be useless to the culture around you. You are the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and they give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is Jesus saying what Jeremiah was saying to the exiles in Babylon. Be distinctly Christian to the culture around you. Don't shrink back from obeying the things of Jesus, but do so in a way that adds value and love and compassion to the culture around you. Dr. Tony Evans says it this way. He says, God's people have been called to penetrate society as both salt and light. I love that word, penetrate been called to intentionally go into society with salt and light. Christians must offer others hope because no earthly institution can offer real hope to this world. Notice it says can't offer real hope. The enemy counterfeits, right? The enemy gives the culture these these false hope and this false idea that that lasts when things are going good. But when things go bad for people who don't have a hope beyond this life, it's not a real hope at all. And so we are called to penetrate society with that eternal hope that comes through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. When we choose to conform, we miss an opportunity to shine the light of the kingdom of God into a world that is desperate for it. So, Fighting, fleeing, conforming—all not options. What's, what do we do? Uh, again, I'm gonna, This is two Tim Mackey quotes in one sermon. Some of you are gonna give me bonus points for that, and some of you are going to send me an email. Um, which is what I love about our church—we unite for the sake of the gospel. Um, Tim Mackey calls it loyal subversion. We're called to form Christ-centered communities with other followers of Jesus. Intentionally loving the culture around us, praying for its prosperity. And I don't have time. Um, I wish I had time to give you the whole story of Jeremiah. But what happens is the book of Daniel. So, if you're bored this week, read Daniel chapter 1 through 9, and you will see a small group of Jewish exiles in Babylon doing the exact thing that Jeremiah told them to do and you will see them literally have an incredible impact on the Babylonian culture. I, I, I wish I had time to get to it. There's example after example of Daniel and his friends, exiles in Babylon, just navigating this whole cultural tension so well, loyally, being loyal, so, so, I don't know how to turn that word into the form I need it to be in, but you, you get it. Um, so, check that out. Daniel is awesome. A few principles, though, that I think I could draw out from Daniel without turning there. Number one, I would say, is build a balanced community. Work hard to create a community of other Christ followers who seek Jesus together. Cultivate godly marriages, families, and friendships. This is what Jeremiah tells the exiles. Have healthy, godly marriages and families Build a kingdom that build a culture of people that the the Babylon's look at you the Babylonians look at you and they're like, what's going on with this weird group of exiles that we brought here to be our slaves and yet now they're flourishing. Why are they so happy? Why are they so successful? Create a, a, a culture of a, a community of believers who are seeking Jesus together, but it's a balanced community, which means we don't isolate from the people of the culture. We build relationships with them as well, intentionally looking for friendships with people who hate the things of God. Intentionally building friendships with people who hate the things of God. (laughs) Yeah, right? It's not easy, and it's not even fun sometimes. But think about Jesus on the cross being murdered by Roman soldiers who are gambling for his clothes, and he says, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's the perspective we have with people outside the church. Not how dare they try and teach our kids about so-and-so or such-and-such. We love them. And we don't teach our kids so-and-so and and -and such-and-such to conform to the culture. We teach our kids the values of God, but we don't say how dare they try and teach our kids so-and-so and 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 such-and-such. We say for that very person, Jesus died. Create a balanced community. Foster a spiritual burden for the culture around you. This doesn't happen accidentally or overnight. We have to pray for these people, and we have to Work hard to build friendships with them slowly over time. There's a book um, by Rosario Butterfield called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Uh, It's an incredible testimony of this happening. Uh, She was a uh, lesbian English professor at Syracuse University in the 90s. And, like, just one Christian family infiltrated her life. No questions asked not asking her to do anything for them, just loving her. And slowly, over time, she's exposed to the gospel of Jesus. Her life was transformed forever, and now her life is built on inviting other people into her home, building relationships, fostering a spiritual burden for the culture outside the church. Let's do that intentionally so that we can demonstrate and declare the kingdom of God to them. Third, remain faithful to God even when it gets bad. We're going to read a little bit more of Jeremiah. This is the verse you guys really like to put on coffee mugs, but without context. <laughs> for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. Do we know what he's saying here? You're going to be enslaved to a culture that hates you for 70 years. I'm asking you to be faithful to me in the midst of this really difficult thing. See, far too often, and I, I think that this is why culture wars are so prevalent in the American church, because we've been discipled to believe that we live in a Christian nation, and so we should have these privileges and powers, and, and, and everything should go well for us, and life should be awesome because we follow Jesus, and you should pat us on the back for that. No, far more often than not, followers of God are actually pushed to the margin. This is what's happening to Israel. God says, I'm going to let you be in exile for 70 years. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. (laughs) Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. In the midst of the most difficult time of your life, cling to this truth. I have a plan for the future, a hope for the future. After 70 years of exile, you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all of the nations and places where you have been driven, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to a place from which I sent you into exile. This is the Old Testament version of the gospel. Not everything's going to be perfect. Not everything's going to go well for you. But because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, I will be faithful to my promises. There is a hope for the future. Jesus wins in the end. Kingdoms come. And go, but Jesus sits on the throne. So no matter what happens here and now over the next 50 to 100 years in America, Jesus is king. And so we cling to that hope. No matter how hard things get, we remain faithful to God. Because he does have plans for us. That's the beautiful thing about the verse. It's without context, but it's true. All of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. Rulers, empires, and secular cultures will come and go, but Jesus remains on the throne and will return one day to establish his rule and reign. If I had to summarize this whole message in one statement, I would say this. Christian exiles in a secular culture are called to live for the prosperity of the culture without conforming to its patterns or fighting against its people. So, What does this have anything to do with our mission and vision statement? This is the general principle, I think, that our mission and vision statements come out of. And that group of people that I told you about at the beginning of the message, we did our darndest to come up with concise language that communicates the type of vehicle we want to be and the direction north we want to head as a church. But anybody that has a Twitter account knows that when you take... Really powerful truths and consolidate them? You could poke a hole in it, probably, right? All right, so let's not do that because we unite for the sake of the gospel. All right, so our mission is to invite real people with real lives into a Christ centered community. We want to cultivate a community of followers of Jesus that takes seriously following Jesus together. And we want to welcome people into that, proclaim the gospel of Jesus into that, develop relationships with people who hate the things of God. We want to be a godly community in the midst of a secular culture. And the real people, real lives thing, like, we we want to be real with people. We're not perfect. We're not leave it to beaver, right? Like, far too often, that's how we want to project ourselves to people that don't value the things of God. We want to be real. Like, we want to be good at this thing, and we're not. And so let's just be honest with the the people that we're trying to build relationships with. Cultivating a community of people who are living in God's kingdom values on earth, not withdrawn from others, but inviting them to come and see God's hope for the world in a relevant and accessible way our vision, the specific direction north that we are heading. We want to cultivate the kingdom of God by proclaiming Jesus clearly and obeying Jesus boldly. God is going to build his kingdom. We just want to be a part of it. How are we a part of it? By, by proclaiming Jesus, his life, death, burial, resurrection, his love, compassion, unconditional forgiveness and obeying him boldly. May we not be a church that preaches the message of Jesus without living the life that he lives. Let's do both and together. For success for us, it's important that we that I point this out with our vision, is that success for us isn't about more attendance success, or successful ministries, but it's about seeing God's kingdom expanded through faithful obedience and gospel proclamation. If our church never grows another person, but the kingdom of God in our city grows, we win. He wins. That doesn't mean I don't want to reach more people and make more room. Let's do that. But if we don't ever accomplish that, but the kingdom of God is cultivated outside of our city, people in the kids' club get to know Jesus and, and find hope and healing in him, we win. So, I don't know about you, this gets me pumped. Imagine what God might do with a group of faithful followers of Jesus committed to sacrificially work for the prosperity of the culture around us without conforming to its practices or fighting against its people. Imagine how the five blocks surrounding this building might be different if we do this faithfully over the long term. Imagine what your families, your marriages, your workplaces, your neighborhoods could look like if we all took this blueprint seriously. And the values of the kingdom of God became visible to those around us. What if we became a kingdom oasis to a people thirsty for a relationship with God all around us? What if we just created this pocket of life-giving water in a desert of dry land? So, follower of Jesus, I'd like you to consider what ways you have been tempted to default to fighting against culture, withdrawing from culture or conforming to culture. Consider that this week. Think about that. Honestly, take an evaluation of your life. How might God be asking you to reform the way you go about relating to secular culture? If you're in here and you don't know Jesus, um, I'd ask you to consider the possibility that you've been duped this whole time by an enemy of God who's trying to just distract you long enough you to just live a life on earth and miss out on the things that God has for you, consider the possibility that God's kingdom might actually be a better way to live. A hope and a future beyond this life. There's another prophet around the same time of Jeremiah named Isaiah, and he wrote this to people outside of the kingdom of God about the kingdom of God. So if you're here And you're like, hey, I don't, think I'm, I don't think I'm in on all of this yet. Um, this is what I would say to you. This is Isaiah, those outside the kingdom. He says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? You've been tricked. This isn't the real thing and your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord. And he will have mercy on them. And to our God, he will freely pardon. He says this My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This is God's kingdom. Sets captives free, gives fathers to the orphan, families to the the stranger provides food for those in need forgiveness for those who have rebelled and living water that never runs dry may we be a people that live according to these values to the glory of god and the good of our neighbor may we create a christ-centered community inviting others to come along may we see the kingdom of god cultivated on earth as it is in heaven as we faithfully obey the commands of jesus and proclaim the message of jesus until the day that he returns.